0: All right. Hey, thank you so much, Patrick and company. Uh, And thank you for singing. And that song is a a great song that touches my heart every time. Really appreciate that. Patrick and Kathleen, thank you for leading us. Thanks for singing. You guys doing okay? Awesome. It's good to see you, and it's good to see the smiles coming as well. I'm already grateful to be here with you. And I I don't know what it is this week, but I just feel like I wish I could... um, reach into each of our hearts and encourage us and give us something hopeful and helpful to hold on to in the Word of God this week. And so I, I just want that for you. I don't even know what that means. I wasn't planning to say that, but some weeks I just feel that and I hope that for you as we open the Word of God together this morning. Uh, so it's just it's good to be with you guys uh, here. Um, hey, we're in this, the third part of a uh, seven-part series. We are calling for God, So Love the Terrorist. Um, this is essentially a book study on the book of Jonah. And the, the deal behind this, the rationale, the why for this series, is because we believe that there are times when God's compassion outpaces ours, and in those moments that our comfort is put on a collision course with his compassion, we have to figure out what to do. In other words, there are people in all of our lives that God loves more than we do. There are people that we have um, an aversion to or a reaction to or just simply don't like or can't stand or have been offended by or whatever— And this book of Jonah is really a study on an individual whose life is a great reflection on how in the world do I begin to get through some of that. And so what do we do? If you call yourself a Christian, what do you do when God's compassion, the God that you worship and serve, who we say I want to be like him, I want my life to reflect on that, when his compassion outpaces mine? Like, how do I react to that? What do I do, and what does it mean to actually be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ when that happens? How do I... Deal with that. How do I process that? And this is a difficult, difficult reality. So we're here in this book now. If you um, have not been with us before in this series, you should know this, because I'm speaking primarily to adults. There's children in here. There's uh, a lot of kids went to uh, children's churches now. But this is this is you. If you're sitting in here, you have you have the mental generally. You have the mental capability generally, it wasn't meant to be a slam on anybody, but there are some, that really sounded bad, all of a sudden, I'm like, there are actually really young kids in here who may not get this, so that's what I meant by that. I wasn't trying to insult anyone's intelligence as that came off really quick, uh, so my apologies if you're offended. I mean, there may be really small kids who may not get it. Anyway, if you are here, okay, generally speaking, most people in this room or listening online later will be able to process what I'm saying at, at, a, at a good level, and that is that this is a children's story primarily, the book of Jonah. It's primarily been marketed that way, it's been taught that way, Um, but we're dealing with it at an adult level, generally, uh, an adult, like junior high, kid level, whatever. We're we're dealing with it at a level in which we're going to engage it differently than if we were teaching it to a four-year-old, okay? That's just the way it is. And so when you do that and you take kind of an adult or a grown-up faith to a children's story, you have to be able to ask adult questions of a children's story and have that be Okay? And we tried to cover that in week one, that there are some good people who will say this story we need to rightly think about, not as actual literal historical events, but as an extended parable, just like the parable of the Good Samaritan we know never really happened, but it is something that carries a meaning and a purpose through time. There are some people who believe that about the book of Jonah. There's also people who believe it was a literal historical deal. I said it almost doesn't matter which way you come because the point of the story carries either way. And if you want to go back and digest that, go back and listen to week one. But here's what I'm doing. I'm teaching this book with this primary question in mind. This is the point, I believe, of the book in the end of the the book in Jonah chapter 4. God asks, should I not have compassion. Like that is the guiding principle that we get to in the book of Jonah, whether this is a parable or whether this is literal historical event. Either way, we get to that point. And so we're teaching it with that in mind. Now, if you want to process more of that, go back to the the first message. I'm not going to reteach that right now. So we now are finding ourselves in a spot in the story of the book of Jonah where um, Jonah has been uh, thrown overboard into the middle of the ocean in the middle of a storm. And last week, if you were here, you would have tracked with us that he put some sailors in danger. And he said, after they asked him, man, what should we do to you to keep us safe? He said, throw me overboard. That's what God wants. I'm running from him. They were absolutely, absolutely terrified. And so we left Jonah kind of bobbing up and down in the ocean. And then all of a sudden he went out of view. And we saw at the end of chapter one, that God appointed a fish or maybe a whale, whatever it is to come and swallow Jonah. Maybe one without teeth, just one with gum, so it didn't hurt him. I don't know. But anyway, he's in now the belly of the fish right now. And the sailors, meanwhile, back on deck, or back on the, the ship, the sailors, they see this storm that was threatening to destroy their ship. The the storm goes calm, and their reaction is to worship. And to say, Wow, we've just seen the hand of God at work. They were worshiping other gods before, and they have a moment of worshiping the God of heaven. Now, there's also worship going on, ultimately, inside the belly of the fish. Jonah is in there, sloshing around. I don't know what it's really like in there, but it's probably not awesome. He's sloshing around, and he has a time of worship in there as well, which is the bulk of of chapter two in the book of Jonah, and so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Jonah, Old Testament book, Jonah chapter two, and we are going to be covering that part of Jonah this morning. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, that Bible in that pew around you is our gift to you. We'd love you to take that Bible and have it as your own. We think it's important to not just own a Bible, but you know, pick it up and read it. We think it's valuable and helpful to do that. We think the Bible is. God's word to us, authority from heaven to us, and we are moved by that. So we encourage you to read the Bible as well. So Jonah chapter 2, and if you can't find it, just look in the table of contents. It's a small little book, so it can easily escape your flipping through the the pages. So here's the deal. Um, We don't know exactly how this is recorded. Again, if we're asking adult questions of the text, we have to just be honest with it and say, if this literally happened... um, Would Jonah have had the mental wherewithal in the middle of a whale to compose such a thoughtful response to God? I don't know how you would react if you were just thrown overboard and found yourself in the belly of a whale, but I would probably not speak in poetic form. Maybe you're different. But this is, this is what is recorded in Jonah chapter 2. The other question that adults have to ask is, how does anyone record this? And how do we know this is actually what Jonah said in the moment? Like, he doesn't have anything to write with. He can't see, number one. How does this actually happen? Now, again, if you believe it's a little historical thing, there are ways to answer that. In other words, this is written afterwards. And Jonah is essentially interviewed or in, in an autobiographical way. He'll write down later what he was thinking. So one way or the other, this is the communication of what's going on inside the fish, and what's going on in Jonah's mind, whether it's the extended parable or whether this is Jonah writing later, but this is what is going on in the book. So these are questions we have to ask. Either way, this section gives us powerful insights into what is happening in the mind of the prophet, whether that is a parable or an actual historical person. To me, it's immaterial because the point carries either way. So let's look at the text in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 1. And Jonah begins there, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry, which is exactly what God does, right? Isn't this what Jonah was afraid would happen to the Ninevites? See, in my distress, I called to the Lord. He answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Like, he's saying, I was, at, I was essentially, I had one foot in the grave, and I cried out to you, God, and you heard me. And I think because Jonah knows that God does this, this is exactly why he didn't want to go to the Ninevites in the first place. He didn't want to give them the opportunity to respond and see this God in action. By the way, the Hebrew word there, and some of you may have a different translation, but from the depths of the grave, or some of your translations might say, from Sheol I called out for help. This is that, that uh, Hebrew word there for the place of the dead. Jonah is putting himself there figuratively and saying, I was, I was in Sheol. I was, I was essentially gone and dead. I was in the place of the grave where the dead live and reside. Uh, that's where I was. And from there I cried out, and listen to how he describes it in verse 3. He says, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. Great picture of what's happening. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Verse 4, I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Meaning just the place where God lives. Like He's just saying I'm going to turn my eyes toward God. Verse 5 The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, and seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. All right, let's pause it there, because this is the first part of chapter two that I really want to get after. And I think what's so important that I want to communicate here, so important for for, for this part of the chapter, is Jonah apprehends so clearly how close he was to death. Like Jonah has felt it so deeply that he was all but... Dead. Like, do you see that imagery in the text? The way that he talks about seaweed being wrapped around his head, the the depths of um, the the waves and the breakers sweeping over me, how he says in uh, verse 6 that the roots of the mountains I sank down, that far down, it felt like the earth beneath barred me in forever. Then he said, verse 7, my life was ebbing away, like I could feel it slipping away. I was this far gone. I think it's so important to understand how far Jonah felt from God in this time, to feel how close he was to death. Because this is exactly what he was feeling like, which we can totally understand at least at a cognitive level. Like, it would make sense if you're in the ocean, you're bobbing around, you're in the middle of a storm. If you've ever gone to the ocean yourself and been knocked over by a good, strong wave and tumbled around, you get a small feel of what it might feel like to be in the vast ocean and be tumbled around by these waves with the current. And this is where Jonah was, feeling totally lost. A millimeter from death. And he calls out to God. And in that moment, in the last possible moment, God saves him. So here's, here's why I, I emphasize this. Okay? This is what we talked about last week. Here is the point from last week, right up here. If God has shown mercy to us, we have no leverage to withhold mercy from others. That, that Jonah understands how far away he was from God's mercy in his near death experience. And what I said last week is if we've experienced that kind of mercy pulling us from that, we have no leverage to withhold that mercy from other people. Now, it's one thing to understand that, right? But here's what I want to press into just a minute or two here this morning for all of us. And this is hard to press in. This maybe is my compulsion and my hope that I wish I could reach into all of our hearts, including my own, and turn on this a little bit for each one of us. Like The question is more of, of, of this. To what degree have we felt the depth of God's grace in our own lives? Like, that is the question to circle around for each one of us for a minute. To what degree, you think about the degree to which Jonah has felt that he was near death. My question becomes, to what degree have we felt the depth of God's grace in our own lives? Like, how much not do I understand what God's grace is, not do I cognitively get it, not have I memorized the verses about it, but to what degree have I personally been like Jonah? To what degree have I ever felt that my sin is so heavy on me that I could write Jonah chapter 2 of my own life? That I could write out my sin and say my life was ebbing away. My sin has cut so deep and so hard and has moved me to the brink of death. Like, I deserve death for the things that I have done, and without you, God, I would be gone. Like, I'm not talking about do I get it mentally. I'm talking about have I, to what degree have I felt what Jonah is feeling here, that I have felt that overwhelming grace of God that is the only solution for my sin, that is the only path forward, because otherwise I am sinking down into the the destruction of my own sin. To what degree have I felt that Part of God's grace come heavy on me. Because here's what I think is so important here, and this is maybe a mouthful to put it up here. I didn't know how to say it, but this is what I believe is happening. To the degree that I understand what position my sin has put me in is the degree that I will be able to extend compassion to others. To the degree that I understand what position my sin has put me in is the degree to which I will be able to extend compassion to other people. To the the degree that I understand how much I was like Jonah, that I am the one who in my own sin deserved to die, when I get that and feel that, all of a sudden it opens up a whole new layer of possibility to extend compassion to people who have really blown it for me. And so the question is, how much, to what degree have I felt that deep grace of God? Let me, let me back it up to maybe another illustration that may help us. Uh, some of you have been through some really difficult times. Uh, personally, uh, and some of you have been through and are going through cancer. Some of you have lost a loved one, uh, a son, a daughter, a mom or dad recently. Um, I know that's true. Some of you are dealing with an uncertain uh, medical future and, and know that. So here's what happens. Let's just say that you have gone through cancer. Isn't it interesting that in a crowd you tend to find people who have gone through cancer. Like in the course of your life, as you walk through your life, you tend to get connected to people who've been through what you've been through, right? And if you've lost a loved one, you tend to find people who have also lost loved ones and they find you, right? Like it just happens. Because when we struggle with something, we can relate to somebody else who's also struggled with the same thing. Now, I have never been through cancer personally, And so while I might connect to you at a personal level, if you've been through it, I will not resonate with you at a deep level unless I too have been through it, right? We just know that's the way it works. We tend to relate best to that which we have struggled with, right? I mean, that's just normal. The same thing applies to the extent to which I understand the depth of my own sin before God. The degree to which I understand and and feel How offensive my sin was before God this is the same degree that I'll be able to relate to you and you to me. Like that just makes sense. And to the degree to which I feel like I don't really need to be forgiven a whole lot because I haven't really done a whole lot of bad things, especially in comparison to you or to you or to you or to you or to you, is a degree to which I will show a little compassion to you, and to you and to you and to you and to you because I can't relate to the struggle that you have. If I could put it this way. (laughs) The title of this series, For God So Loved the Terrorist, if I can push on that a little bit, here's what I'm trying to get to. It's not only true that God so loved the terrorist. The greater truth is that I am the terrorist. That's the extent of the impact of sin for me and for you. And if I don't buy that, buy into that. You don't have to buy that. You don't have to buy into that. But then we have to wrestle with what the Bible teaches about that. If the Bible teaches for the wages of sin is death, then as soon as you've sinned at all, then your wages and what's due to you and to me is sin. Now, if you don't buy that, again, you don't have to wrestle with me on that. You just have to wrestle with the book of Romans and what the Bible teaches on that. But if that's true, the wages of any sin is death, then, as soon as I sin, I am equal to, maybe not in action, but equal to in terms of what is due to me, the terrorist, the worst maybe that I can think of. We covered this a couple weeks ago in our Sunday school elective. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his little book, Life Together, about the impact of sin in our community and how it feels to us. He put it this way, and some of you who are there will remember this. Bonhoeffer um, wrote, he said, Finally, one extreme thing must be said. To forego self-conceit and to associate with the lowly means in all soberness and without mincing the matter to consider oneself the greatest of sinners. It sounds like an exaggeration, like an untruth. And yet even Paul said of himself that he was the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said this specifically at the point where he was speaking of his service as an apostle. As an apostle, he identified as the worst of sinners. Bonhoeffer writes, there can be no genuine acknowledgement of sin that does not lead to this extremity. And then he makes a statement, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. He who would serve his brother in the fellowship must sink all the way down to these depths of humility. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than mine? How can I possibly serve you if I think you are a worse sinner than me? How can I do that? Now, let me, let me break from my normal routine for a minute, okay? I'm going to step off the safety and comfort of my platform. And I want to walk to the back of the sanctuary for a minute, hoping that my microphone will work. Because what I want to do is I want to place in perspective the holiness of God. And I also kind of want to say hi to the people in the back. It's good to see you guys. You all look the same back here. It's good to look at the smiles. All right. So all the way back here, and i just try to recall this spot right here, because this spot I'm going to use as the spot where God's holiness resides and God's holiness lives right back over here, okay? I won't take that personal, Neil. I heard that heard that call, the emergency call. There's God's holiness all the way in the back of the sanctuary. Now, here I am speaking to you guys from up here. Now, here's what I want to say with that long walk down the aisle of the sanctuary. Number one, good to see some of you guys back there in person. Looks great back there. Number two... <clears throat> If my holiness is here and God's is back there, there's a gap between here and there that's pretty significant. What that means for me is that here's, here's the deal. <clears throat> I might be right here in terms of my relative holiness, how many bad things I've actually done. And maybe you're a better person than me. Maybe you have done more good things than I have done, or you not done whatever I've done. And where that puts you in relation to your holiness and God's holiness is that moves you about that far. And maybe I've done worse things than you, and so that moves me right about here. To which point I say, good for you, yay for me, but we are still miles away from the distance between here and there. And this is what makes Jonah's next statement so significant that he writes in chapter 2, verse 8. Because the next thing he writes is, to me, a life changer. A verse that is so profound that speaks to this issue of how we see ourselves and what we hold to in relation to God's holiness and apprehending our own sin. He says in verse 8, and you can look at your text with me there, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now again, I don't know how you come up with that while you're sloshing around in the belly of the whale, because that is really good. You know what he's saying? He's like, listen, if, if you want to think, I think he's speaking to himself, but if you want to think that God has somehow looked at you with a little bit more favor because you've always come to church or because your family's always been pretty good or because you don't have a history of being an idiot, publicly at least, like if you want to think that that has somehow helped you move closer to God and that has made you someone that God just can't wait to bring into the family. You're clinging to something that will move you relatively from here to here. Like all of our good works are like filthy rags before God, there's nothing that we can do that can bridge the gap from here to there with one fell swoop there. And so if that's the case, Jonah is saying, you can hold to the idols if you want to. The idol of, I'm a hard worker. God's got to be pleased with me for that. I've never fallen into that kind of ugly sin that destroys families. I've never been this kind of thing. uh, I know people out there are like this. For Jonah, let me tell you about Jonah. I think his worthless idol is the idol of revenge and justice. I believe, this is what I think Jonah believed, those people need to pay for what they've done. Those Ninevites, they're terrible people. Look at how many people they've slaughtered, not just in this generation, but in all the generations. I mean, look at those... They have no moral compass. They're doing all kinds of things sexually. They're doing all kinds of things morally. They are corrupt, and they are dominating people with their power, and you want me to give them another chance? And I think Jonah's worthless idol is that I need to see a sense of justice come to be. That's what I think his worthless idol is. We'll remember Neil maybe as he's involved in that. This is Jonah's deal, right? This is Jonah's situation, that this worthless idol of justice is causing him to say, I don't even want to go to the Ninevites. And this is why he writes what he does. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And here's what I want for us, okay? I don't want you and I don't want to spend a lifetime clinging to something that is worthless. I don't want you to spend your life clinging to and holding to this belief somehow that hmm, as long as I keep a list of things that I don't do or I do do, that God is going to be pleased with me. I'm just telling you, you will forfeit, you will give up the grace that could be yours. You will give up the feeling. I asked you the question earlier, to what degree have you felt the deep grace of God come to you? Because any of us who have said that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ has had to have felt at some point that God all the way over there has reached us all the way over here because my ability to move to him is about this far, this far, this far. I cannot and will never be able to go from here to there. And so if that is true and the wages of sin is the death, when God comes from there to me and extends that level of grace to me. What leverage do I have to withhold that grace and that mercy from other people? And Jonah's saying, let me just warn you about a life lesson. Don't cling to the worthless idols that move you from here to here and allow you to look around at your fellow human beings with judgment because if I compare myself to you and you compare yourself to me, it's too easy to feel good about yourself in light of me. It's too easy to feel like you're a better person than me. It's too easy to feel that like you're what, because I'm not the standard. And Jonah says, please, don't spend your life clinging to worthless idols. You're going to forfeit. You will give up the grace that can be yours. It's an amazing concept. And so some of us may be sitting here like, I hear you, but I don't know that I've ever felt that. Let me tell you, that's totally possible. Because that kind of grace that says, I see what God has done for me, pulls into us a heart that is so soft and so compassionate for other people who have sinned and wronged us and cut us the wrong way it creates in us such a draw to the mercy and goodness of God that it extends to people all around us this tremendous grace that is likewise the same feeling. And so Jonah's pleading with you, please, 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 please. please. Don't cling to worthless idols. <laughs> now here's what Jonah does, I'll tell you this. Jonah, being the good um, man that he does, the good prophet that he is, um, he makes a commitment to God in the belly of the fish. And you can see it there if you want to. He finishes in chapter 2, verse 9, and then into verse 10. He makes a commitment to God that he's going to be recommitted to him, essentially, and he's going to be for him, and he's going to do all the right things. And then in verse 10, the, the fish spits Jonah up onto dry land. And here now in the story is presented Jonah The reborn man. Just had an experience. Belly of fish. I've just recommitted. I wrote this poem for all of you to see. I had this time with God. You know what Jonah does? He relapses. It doesn't even take him two chapters. And he relapses to how he felt at the beginning of the book, by the time the book is over. Because I share in his humanity. We all do. That Jonah's experiences like ours, like we have moments of being God, I'm all in, I'm totally in, I'm moved over to you, I'm fully committed. And then, you know what, a day later, a week later, a month later, what do I do? I fall right back into the stupid stuff that I used to do and the things that tear me down, the things that draw me down. That is going to be life. And so when that happens, It reminds me anew, not that I'm ever going to reach God, but that him and his grace has come to me to cover that sin for me. And so it's a constant reminder of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of salvation that I will never be able to reach to God, but in his grace he reaches so deeply to me. I'll tell you what Jonah needs and what the Ninevites need, and I'll tell you what I think we all need. And that is what will be presented next week in the beginning of chapter 3. And Jonah gets the most famous second chance in history. We're going to look at that next week as we see a second chance for Jonah and a second chance for the Ninevites. And I would hope for all of us a second chance again. My hope for us this morning is to see with a second chance and a fresh set of eyes the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope and the grace that reaches to us. And my hope for us is this for you, If nothing else that you will remember, I walked all the way to the back this morning and made it all the way back up here. Simply to point out, we can never span that gap alone. And I may be here and you may be here, but none of us are there. And if that's true, then don't cling to the things that move you from here to here because it's a waste of your life. Cling to that which has brought you from here over to there. That is the good news of the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah. The work that is done in this book. The insight it gives us into our own hearts. And I pray for us as people that we could have courage not to cling to the things that we think make us awesome or the things that we think make other people terrible. The offenses done against us, the sin maybe that we see present in other people's lives, that which we wish were different for others. There are some of us who uh, do hold long-term grudges and who have been for many years upset with others or refuse to talk with or you know, engage or move forward in relationship with. And I pray for each of us as we are tempted to go there sometimes, that you would give us a tremendous reminder of the depths from which we have been saved. Help us to feel again what Jonah felt in the middle of the sea being drawn down to the depths to see that his life, his very life, was ebbing away. Remind us of the truth that not only do you love the terrorists, but we are the terrorists that you love because of our sin before you. Father, may we show with courage the grace and compassion that you desire to show to others. We thank you for your goodness and your loving kindness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.